0: Welcome to Forming the Spirit Within, a teaching ministry of Pastor Brad Riley. Pastor Brad is an associate and teaching pastor at First Church of the Nazarene here in Wichita, Kansas. He is a founder and director of the Merciful Servants of Christ, as well as the author of numerous articles. And now, here is Pastor Brad. Well, how are you all doing tonight? Okay. Doing okay with the heat? Yeah. Did, oh, cool. did you? Were you able to avoid the big traffic? I didn't tell you till it was too late when you were coming. There was a big traffic tie-up on Kellogg coming from the west. Was it an accident? Yeah. It was fine. When we yeah, the one west, yeah. I was coming from the west and got caught in it myself when I was out just trying to get here. But Well, glad you all made it here. It's good to see you on a August hot August night. And uh, we are going to continue our study through the Spirit-filled life. We've had five classes on the Spirit-Filled Life, and last week, I brought—I went ahead and brought notes from last week, so in case you missed them or didn't, but I did get the, uh, I made you an extra sheet so you had more room to take notes that just have the five-fold life that's guided by the Holy Spirit. That's what I want to go over tonight. We didn't have time to do that last week. So the five-fold life, or it's what I'm calling, I mean, that's not a... uh, that's not a seminary uh, point or anything, you know, the five-fold lie. It's just five, five ways that I believe the Holy Spirit guides us into life. So I've identified them, and I gave them to you on another sheet of paper for tonight's notes, so you had more room to take notes, because they were kind of crammed at the bottom of the last one, and wasn't a lot of room there to take notes. So, by way of review, let me remind you, that last week we discovered that it is by wisdom and revelation that God uh, inspires us. He, he brings wisdom to our life and He truly reveals. Ephesians 1:17 through18 tells us that it's by wisdom and revelation that we come to know God. and we, we gain those by knowing God, it says here. Let me just read that for you again since it's not actually printed on your notes. But Ephesians 1, chapter 17, I mean, chapter 1, verse 17 says, um, The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, this is part of Paul's prayer for for revelation, "that, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation. In the knowledge of him, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? Wow. God has a power towards us who believe. It is a great power. It is a power that brings wisdom. It is uh, the God of the universe revealing himself to us. All of this happens within the confines of what we like to call the spirit-filled life. Now, in that process, it's an amazing thought. Just think about it with me. Isn't it amazing that the God of the universe would reveal himself to us and to come and literally take up residence within us? That's a mind blower if you really think about it. The God of the universe reveals himself to us and comes to take up residence in us. So the spirit of revelation, I read to you Psalm 118 last week. Your note says 116 because it was a typo, but it was Psalm 118. And in Psalm 118, uh, and I'll just read it for you again, it says here, that God, talking about how God reveals himself to us. In verse uh, 26, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Let's stop right there. Who is this psalm talking about? When it says, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Who's the one? Jesus. Okay, it's talking about Jesus. That's a prophetic reference to Jesus. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We see this quoted in the uh, the shouts of Hosanna and uh, on the, the day of the triumphal entry. Blessed is Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, verse 27, our key here. The Lord is God, and he has given us light. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. Now, that last part might sound a little out of place to us because we don't bind anybody's horns to an altar anymore, but in the Old Testament, they did. Okay, that animal sacrifice and the horns of the ram or the bull or whatever were always uh, bound to the altar. And what he's saying here is the psalmist is saying, the Lord is God, and he has given us light. Some translations will say, and he has revealed himself to us. Light is God's revelation to us. Recall the story of uh, from Mark chapter nine, the pinnacle of Mark's Gospel. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on Mount Tabor with him. and he does what? Do you recall the story? Yeah, we just, the church actually on the church calendar, the, the Eastern church calendar, we just celebrated that last week. The celebration of the transfiguration. In that momentous event, Jesus Christ, God made human flesh, okay? The mind of God in human flesh. The word of God, the logos. The creator, whom the creeds tell us nothing was made that wasn't made by him. He takes Peter, James, and John up on the mountainside, and he's transfigured. And if you remember the story, when he was transfigured, it says that Moses and and Elijah were standing beside him. And they knew him. And they knew him. And they were conversing with him. But there's one other really important detail. What's the most important detail of all? Well, they fell asleep, or they fell in the trance, or something. They were kind of awestruck. Okay, and and. What is the? The scripture actually tells us in Mark nine. I didn't write that down for you because I'm just kind of filling in some details. I can't give you everyone, but sorry about that. But he was transfigured into a figure of light. Yeah. Yeah. It tells us that. It tells us that his garment became some some uh, some scri- some scriptures say whiter than the fuller's soap. <laughs> you can see this ancient writer just trying to. Uh, Write some description. Trying to find a metaphor. How do you say something that is so bright that it's brighter than bright? Like the, okay. When the Orthodox depict that, it's it's almost like tinted with a little blue, actually in their icons. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it's like it's like a beyond white. That's the that's the only way they can depict it. It's like this beyond, beyond white. Beyond yeah, white. I like, I like the, that term. Yeah. Blue color beyond is. white. Mm-hmm. Because and what the Orthodox have rightly taught, and and I discovered this in my learnings from them, because I never hear Western scholars concentrate on this, and I I think they should, is, is this concept of the uncreated light. What Jesus was showing them was the uncreated, he was showing them his glory. When they saw Jesus, the man, Jesus of Nazareth, walking around the earth, skin and flesh and hair and, you know, hugging and and and, and sitting and talking, all that, they saw a human being. They saw the glory of God masked in human flesh. The the, the mind-blowing, incredible miracle of the incarnation that God could become human flesh. And for that moment, those moments on the mountainside, it's like he lifted the veil and they saw his glory and this bright, uncreated light. Why do we say uncreated? Because Jesus always was, and there never was a time when he was not. He is eternally existent before all worlds, as the creed tells us. He is the uncreated light. So when John, in his Gospel, starts in his letters of, of uh, we looked um I think we looked. Yeah, last week I think I might have had you look at John uh, chapter one when it said, "If we walk in the light as He is in the light." That's First John chapter one. I'm sorry. If we walk in the First John five. 1 John one five. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Okay. Now I'm going to get to. Um, One of the spirits that God gives us is the spirit of continuing fellowship, but I don't want to get ahead of myself there because we're on the spirit of revelation right now. But the idea I want you to hear is that John, one of his favorite metaphors for Jesus is light. He talks about Jesus as the light of the world. He says, even back in Isaiah, Isaiah says, on people living in a darkness, a great light has dawned. When the Savior comes, Isaiah was predicting, when the Savior comes, a great light has dawned. Even on those who live in darkness. So there is this dark light metaphor all throughout God's Word that without God, without, and specifically without Christ, we are in darkness. It doesn't matter how bright the sun is. We're talking about a darkness that, prev- that, that prevails outside of this world and a light that prevails outside of this world, the forces of good and evil. Okay? So we want a spirit of light in our lives. God has given us a spirit of revelation, of wisdom. And the way we get it is through, he tells us in our opening verse there, Ephesians chapter one, verse 18. The way we get it is through knowledge of him, through knowing him. So not knowing about him, we can know everything about Jesus in a clinical sense or a scholastic sense and never really know him intimately but it's when we have yielded our hearts our very li- the essence of our lives we we talk about metaphorically the heart the hebrew people talked about the heart as the essence of one's being okay when, when we've yielded our heart to the light of christ then we can be said to know him intimately okay and to continually get to know him because he's constantly wanting to draw us in and more and more. And this is, the, this is the beauty that we've been looking at in the Spirit-filled life all summer. It's not an event only. The baptism of the Holy Spirit or this moment of consecration, this thing that we call entire sanctification, it is a moment. It is a crisis. But beyond that, it's a continual throughout our life of God revealing himself to us and us getting to know him more and more. Okay, And, and, and he lo- him loving us and us learning to love him more and more. So there's the spirit of revelation. Um, and I think I want to add a couple of notes here about how he reveals himself to us. couple of ways. Number one, that we're most used to is the word. And I do mean the Holy Scriptures this time. One of the ways God has chosen to reveal Himself to us is through holy scripture. That's why we call it holy. We believe it's God's word to us and that it is profitable for, as Paul says to Timothy, for all training all scripture is is good for training and reproof and correction and doctrine, you know, first Timothy three sixteen, I think it is. So well, he was talking about the holy scriptures, and to which he was talking about the Old Testament, because it all existed when Paul was writing that. But we know it as the Old and the New Testament now. The scriptures are God's word to us; they are God's revelation to us. But they're not the only source of His revelation to us. Sometimes, as Protestant Christians, we get—we're guilty of putting the Bible on such a pedestal. Okay. That It's the end-all be-all to God's revelation to the world. That's not true. That cannot be true because the Bible as we know it didn't exist through much of God's story and interaction and revelation to humankind, okay? It was written down over about 1,500 years by over 40 different people guided by the Holy Spirit and then not even gathered into one document to have an authority by the Church of Christ on earth to say, this is the approved Bible or this is the approved, uh, especially when we're talking about the New Testament, for some almost 400 years was the late 4th century, the 390s, I think 391, when a council determined with authority, a Christian council, I think it was the Council of Carthage, determined with authority these 27 books are the New Testament of Jesus Christ. And they are, the church gave it its seal of approval, if you will. It's, in Latin, the word is imprimatur, okay? It's imprimatur. This is our seal of approval. This is what we say. Anything else outside these 27 books cannot be considered, I'm talking about the New Testament now, cannot be considered as God's direct revelation to us. Might be some good things to read, but you got to be real careful. These, we believe, the hand of God has helped us to uh, help reveal them to the authors and how they were uh, written. So if not just the Bible, then what else? How else has God revealed himself to us? Well, through his spirit, just guiding humans. I mean, he was guiding Moses without a Bible, right? His spirit was revealing himself to Moses Uh, and Abraham and Noah and all the patriarchs of the Old Testament. I mean, through much of the Old Testament, remember Those books were just getting written. They weren't collected as an official, even Old Testament Bible, until, does anybody know the answer to this question? When was the Old Testament Bible kind of officially kind of put into, well, it wasn't even book form, because it was still scrolls then. But does anybody know? Well, we believe they had A lot of the scriptures at the time of the Babylonian captivity, so you're talking 500s B.C., okay, or B.C.E., however you want to say it. But those were Hebrew, and they were also destroyed. But what we know, most of it, but what we know was kept, and what was rewritten down, and what was passed on, because we know that in the beginning the Bible was an oral tradition passed on, okay, was collected as by the Greek-speaking Jews in about the middle of the 3rd century before Christ. And it was called the Greek Septuagint. The Greek Septuagint. Now, there were Hebrew Bibles being collected about that time, too, but by far the Greek Septuagint became the, the, uh, the, the reigning scripture of the world because the world spoke Greek. That was in the middle of the 200s, so 250s B.C., right in that era, the middle of the third century before Christ. That's when we, we really began to have a full set of authoritative scriptures. That, and they were Jewish scholars, Jewish that, that wrote them, okay, that transcribed them, and that translated them, from what fragments they had and what knowledge they had. So it wasn't that the Greeks wrote them. They just wrote in Greek because that was the language. That was the scholarly language of everyday life. Uh, So scholars spoke Greek. Now, I say all that to say, what guided those Old Testament uh, prophets and and, uh, patriarchs? The the Holy Spirit. And He. what guided the church through 390 years of, of activity without a set of new testaments i mean my goodness if the church today if our church if we tried to uh, hold us some big council and we wanted to talk about doctrine and we wanted to say what's authoritative we'd be lost if we didn't have a new testament to go prove something by or to look something up and to appeal to okay but didn't have that for 390 years what'd they have well they had the holy spirit but the holy but they had an organized church too And they had the apostles and the apostolic witness. Okay? So one of the ways God has revealed himself to us is the apostolic witness, or we might call it the apostolic tradition that Peter, James, and John passed on to Barnabas and Silas and whoever, if you know what I'm saying. And then they passed on to so-and-so and 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 so-and-so, Ignatius and Irenaeus and these early first couple of hundred year bishops of the church leaders of the church we have to accept that or we're we're standing here like a flamingo with with not both legs to stand on and we're a little wobbly okay if we don't accept some type of apostolic witness because you will be surprised at Protestant scholars who will just say, oh, we just stand on the Bible and everything's good through history. Well, yeah, the Bible's great. I'm not saying it's not. It's holy. It's God's word. but don't ignore. So now we've said there are three ways his spirit to us personally through the Holy scriptures. And the third one is through the church, as we've talked about this apostolic witness that's handed down within the church. Okay. Now, How can we, the reason we need, the reason I fully, I believe in God's providential knowledge and his plan for our our world. He gave us scripture as well as the tradition because they complement one another. Here's what we need to understand. Nothing in holy apostolic tradition contradicts anything in scripture if we really study it. Okay. They can't because they're really the same thing. One's oral, one's written, okay? There are more things in tradition than are in scripture. John even admits that at the end of his gospel. He says, I suppose if we tried to write down everything that Jesus ever said or did, there wouldn't be enough paper in the world to hold it, okay? Paul, the great apostle, says in his Thessalonian letter, which is one of the, which, which remember, 1 Thessalonians, what most scholars believe to be the first letter written of the New Testament, of the New Testamental letters, okay? First Thessalonians. So it's an early letter in the life of the church. Paul's writing to the church in Thessalonica, and or if you're Greek, it's Thessaloniki. Uh, he's writing that letter, and he tells them in chapter 2, verse 15, he says this fascinating thing. He says, now I want you to pay attention to the traditions we taught you, whether in word, or in letter. Okay, the letter is the written word. But obviously they had some traditions that were passed on orally. So when we look into you know, our sister churches, people like uh, the, the Eastern Orthodox or the Roman Catholics or the Anglicans, these ancient churches that have existed way longer than, than some of us evangelicals, when we look into their life and we see some practices or some things that they say and do, A lot of them that that, that seem foreign to us, or we don't understand where they get that in Scripture, a lot of it comes from tradition. Some of it comes from tradition, by the way. So before we judge, let's think. What is it? Where can it be uh, found? Who are the people that taught it? And And that's no different than today. Because here's what's happening today. And it's been happening for a long time, but it's always been happening. We can we need to go we look no further than we go all the way back to the earliest heresies when people started teaching the wrong things. Well, who was to say that Arius was wrong when he started teaching Jesus wasn't really God and man? He was he was just a created being under who's gonna tell him he's wrong? The church had to collectively get together and say, you know what, this doesn't square. It doesn't square with what we're reading in scriptures, even though the New Testament had not been put together yet. Okay, But the author- church had authority because it had a tradition. And they said, no, this is not what the apostolic witness is. It's not what they taught us about Jesus. He is God and man. He is the God-man. Theo and tropos. Theos, God, and tropos, man. Now, same thing happens today. Bishop so-and-so in some non-denominational church, let's say, likes to call himself a bishop even though he's not ordained in any type of long denominational history of anything. But he, And I'm not going to call out names because I don't want to offend anyone, but I, I, I'm telling you this happens. So-and-so and it'll see, it'll just makes something up and says he has the authority to do it because God's revealed it to him. Or we can go all the way to uh, some nutcase, you know, who says God told him. Uh, uh, A David Koresh down in Waco who said God told him to build that commune and do that. You know, so we have to be careful with this idea of the spirit of revelation. How do we guard the spirit-filled life, the life of Christ in us, against those kind of false revelations? Because you can bet there are still false revelations if we're not careful. Well... One of the ways we guard against it is to recognize that if it contradicts anything in Scripture or anything in the ancient early tradition leading up to that New Testament period, it can't be true. God has not, he's not in the business of giving new revelation on a doctrinal level. Okay. Now he may reveal. To me, oh Brad, I need you to go somewhere else and go mission, go to the mission field, and go do this. That's kind of a personal revelation. But I'm not saying I'm saying not revealing to the church new teaching, new doctrine. There's no secret waiting yet to be discovered that will make sense, better sense, out of the world and life. The gospel is final. The gospel is true, and the gospel was full and complete. And Jesus said on the cross, what? His last words on the cross. It's finished. it's finished. That's right. It's finished. So what do we do with that? We, under, we need to learn to embrace the idea that, yes, God is revealing to us. But so when when, when you start feeling like, well, I think that's wrong. I think uh, God's revealing to me that's wrong. Well, check your sources. Be humble enough. To talk to somebody. Look at something and make sure before we just judge and say what's right and wrong. Be humble. Be, be led by the Spirit, okay? Um, and we're gonna that'll fit into some of the later ones, like the continuing fellowship. But let's move to the, the Spirit of Assurance. Okay, this is one of my favorite ones. I love this. I love this doctrine. The Spirit of Assurance. God has not left us without assurance. John Wesley called this the witness of the Spirit. The witness of the Spirit. So let's look a little bit at the book of Romans. Uh, if you want to turn to chapter 8, and we'll look at a few scriptures that will shed some light on this, this spirit that God guides us with, the spirit of assurance. I'm just going to read here maybe the first... Uh, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and read the first 13 verses of the... Go- of, I I'll about to say the gospel of Romans. It should be a gospel. It's, it seems like it recants Jesus' life pretty well. The epistle to the letter letter of the Romans. (coughs) Excuse me. Chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, I want to stop right there real quick and say that's our goal. Okay? Those who are... He doesn't say for those who believe in Christ Jesus. He says for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the spirit-filled life, brothers and sisters. The spirit-filled life is to be in Christ. So you might circle that little word in. So then he goes on in verse 2 to say, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ, there's that little word in again, in Christ Jesus, has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Okay, underline those words. Walk, do not walk according to the flesh, but do walk according to the Spirit. That's our goal. That's what we're supposed to be living. That is the Spirit-filled life. He's setting up a comparison for us. If we're truly in Christ Jesus, We don't walk by the flesh. That means by what our fleshly desires are in this life. We walk by what the Spirit of God wants in this life for us. So he goes on, verse 5, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, it means the Holy Spirit, it's always a capital S there, okay? When you see a capital S, he means the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit of God. Then they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Life and peace. If we could only share with the hurting, lonely, lost, empty, voided people in our world today, the life and peace they're looking for is in the spirit of God. And if they will just, we've got to preach it to them. You know, How will they know unless no one tells them? Okay, let me carry on. Because, verse 7, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Boy, just circle that. That's pretty definitive, isn't it? If you're living according to the flesh, you cannot please God. What does it mean to live according to the flesh? It means to to have your own way, to not consider God's way but to let your own will guide your life, not God's will. Okay? And it means more than that, but that's just a quick quick summation for you. And verse 9, very important verse, verse 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Holy Spirit. If <laughs> Okay, there's a there's a big big if there. You're only in the Holy. What he's saying is you're only in the Holy Spirit and not in the flesh. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, I know that sounds logical, but it sounds like it maybe doesn't need to be said. But he goes on further and says, "But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him." Capital H, meaning Christ or God. Christ. So, so what are we trying to say here? What is Paul trying to tell us? That there is a life to be lived in the Spirit of God, in Christ. And the way we prove that we have that, the way we know that we have that, is if we have the Spirit of Christ within us. Now, I think there's a reason why Paul uses a word change here from the Spirit of God to the Spirit of Christ. Because it was very easy for people to appeal. The Jewish people appealed to the Spirit of God all the time when they weren't accepting the Spirit of Christ. But it's very important that Paul show Christ and God are equal. Christ is God. Okay, That's why he's using the interchange on the words there. Part of why. Verse 10. And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. That is a beautiful verse. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who indwells you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, then you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Now, um, that's a very important verse there. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. You can circle those words, sons of God. I'm going to talk, talk about that in just a minute. Continuing on, verse 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption. As sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy. It's a those are, that's an in terms of endearment, a name of endearment. For the Spirit Himself, and here's our key verse: the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now we just said a whole lot, and you could go about a hundred different directions to teach the 8th chapter of Romans. But I'm just trying to narrow in on this idea that there is such a thing called the spirit of witness, the witness of the spirit. And it, it assures us, as it says in verse 16 there, it assures us, the spirit of God, the, spirit, the, the witness of the spirit, I never called the Holy Spirit it. The Holy Spirit is a person, so it would be he. But when I said it, I meant the witness of the spirit. His witness assures us. It and Paul says it assures our spirit. So if you've ever lived, and if you're living now, wondering, oh, Am I really God's child? Am I really, I don't know, am I really even saved? Am I really even part of the family of God? I don't, these thoughts creep into our mind all the time. Satan is the great accuser, the father of all lies, and he can come to us all the time and sell us, defeat, trying to feed us with those kind of lies. The key is if we believe is faith. Remember I said last week the key to sanctification, the key to the spirit-filled life is just like it is for salvation, it's faith. When those lies come, we need to be able to stand on the faith. God's word says it, it's true. Those who have the spirit of Christ. And what does it take to have the spirit of Christ? He told us in there. Those who have put to death the deeds of the flesh and maybe the better way to say it is is the way he explains it to the Galatian church in Galatians 2. For I have been crucified with Jesus Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the Spirit of the Son of God who gave himself up for me. You see the difference? There's an eternal exchange being made here. And in one sense, it is, a, it is always going to be a crisis moment. That's why we talk about the crisis moment of being sanctified. But it's also an everlasting exchange as we keep ourselves surrendered. Okay, We must surrender ourselves to Almighty God. We must crucify our flesh. We must surrender our will to God's. And that's a different decision than just being saved. And that's why we talk about the second blessing. This witness of the Spirit, this baptism of the Holy Spirit. So, I know we're going through a lot here in a very short period of time. Let me look at my notes. I don't want to miss anything. Um, The Spirit bears witness with our spirits that we are adopted into God's family. We don't have to doubt. So when the doubts come, what do you do with the doubts? When the lies of Satan come and tell you you're not really a Christian. You're not really saved. You're not really sanctified. You're not really... What do you do with those doubts? Go to Scripture. Go to scripture. And one of the greatest Scriptures to go to is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. Or is it 10, verse 5? I can never remember. I get dyslexic on that. But it's one of those. In 2 Corinthians, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Take every thought captive. So you say, Lord, I uh, help that... Because remember, thoughts... Our thought life is not sinful, okay? Our thought life is not <laughs> sinful. When we yield to thoughts that are not right, then it becomes sin. But we can't stop thoughts from coming into our head. It's just... That's that's reality, okay? But we don't have to keep those thoughts, and we don't have to dwell on those thoughts. We can take them captive and put them in prison. <laughs> Let Jesus put them in prison. Um I wanted to read you something from Dr. William Greathouse's book here. I think this is so profound. Um, So bear with me. I'll read you a couple paragraphs here. He says, The book of Genesis discloses to us that man in God's image was holy. His life was ordered and harmonious, whole, and integrated. Living in perfect communion with God, His entire life was under the sanctifying control of the Spirit of God. But something has happened to human nature. By the fall, man forfeited the gift of the Holy Spirit. The glory departed. As a consequence, man's lower nature, his selfish and sensual impulses, we might say his self-will, came to dominate his spirit. Cut off from God, man became a creature of the flesh. His life had known a beautiful God-centeredness and now festered in ugly self-centeredness. Here's the key thought. It is the work of the Holy Spirit to restore the original order of harmony of human nature. This does not mean that we are brought back to Adamic, meaning Adam's perfection. We're not brought back to being as if we'd never sinned in in Adamic perfection. For our humanity bears the marks of sin's racial history. Only the stroke of omnipotence at the second coming of Christ can erase the effects of sin from the human nature. That's why, I love that, that phrase. Let me see if I can paraphrase him there a little bit. Because when we when we are sanctified, when we are when we have given our life and entire our whole heart, an entire development, entire consecration to the Holy Spirit of God, too, and He has come to fill us, we are not saying that we will cease being human. We're not saying that we'll cease being tempted. We're not saying that we may never fall. It's possible to fall. What we're saying is, we don't have to fall because God's Spirit is capable of keeping us. Okay? So, it's not that we're turned back into Adam. We're restored into relationship with God, but it won't be full and complete until the Christ brings it an end to this human and at, let's face it. When Christ comes again and we are ushered into eternity, we're no longer human then. We're glorified. You see the difference? But as long as we're here and breathing on this earth, we're human. And we're going to bear the marks, as he's saying. We're going to bear the scars. And one of those scars, one of those marks, is that little ugly self-will that sometimes wants to raise its voice when it's tempted. Okay. But we don't have to give in. Um, oh, there's so much more I could read to him. I always recommend you read the book. It's really good. Well, let's move on. We're uh, Well, we're not going to finish all these tonight. Won't even try. So if you can come back next week, we'll continue next week, okay? Because we still have the spirit of control, the spirit of continuing fellowship, and the spirit of fruitfulness. So I want to venture into the spirit of control, because this flows from the idea of assurance. Um, there is one scripture that I haven't read to you that I didn't write it on your notes there, but I did want to give it to you, and it's from the book of First John. It's one I memorized years ago, so I'll just read it to you. I'll just... Quote it to you first rather than take the time. 1 John 5.13. First John 5.13 says this. These things, this is the end of the book, okay? It's the end of chapter 5.13, and chapter 5 is all there is in, in 1 John. And after saying all that he said, he kind of summarizes himself by saying, All these things I've written to you so that you may know that you are children of God. I love that. That's the that's the doctrine of assurance. That's the spirit of assurance. God doesn't want to keep us guessing. We can know where He his. Okay. These things I have written to you, that you may know that you are children of God. And I don't. And I'm. You know, there's all different versions. I don't know if I'm reading it exactly word perfect. There, saying it to you word perfect. I'll just look it up real quick. No, I, I'm not. See, so let me get this straight for you. These things I have written to you. Who believe in the name of the son of god in order that you may know that you have eternal life wow now that's eternal security eternal security is not based on what we what we do necessarily on the fact that we you know we could never lose our salvation what it's based on is on god's power and god's knowledge and he's revealed these things to us okay we're eternally secure as long as our will is surrendered to God. okay. No, I always say it this way, nobody, is, nobody ever has, nobody ever will go to hell by accident. Uh, God just revealed that to me years ago. No one ever went to hell by accident. God has made a way out of hell into eternal life. But we must choose it. And once we've chosen it, we're not going to accidentally lose it. I do believe, and it is our theology, that we could forfeit it. We could get hard in our hearts, and we could choose to turn away from God. And we could ultimately, now I don't know when that happens, we can't be legalistic, and we can't say, oh, that person stepped once in too far, and now they're lost to hell. We can't do that. We're not the judge. Only God is the judge. But what we can say is that this is why we need the church and why we need each other, so that we don't get lost adrift in a sea of sin and a sea of selfishness. We need each other. We need the church of God. We need the grace of God that comes to us through the the body of Christ in the church so that we can have this assurance and know that we're not accidentally going to fall. My good shepherd knows his sheep. He knows my name. I'm not worried about going to hell, okay? What I'm worried about is... Not being a good enough servant, not being a good enough servant, and doing all that I could do, so that on that day I'm gonna I'm gonna look back and he's and I'm gonna see wow what, look at all I should have done and I didn't. You know I'm, I'm a little worried about that, but I'm really not worried about going to hell. I pray with all my heart that I'm I believe I'm saved, I believe I'm sanctified, and I believe I'm gonna persevere. Okay, but I am not so perfect as to think that I I have no more temptation to sin, because I do. And then if I'm not doing the A, B's and C's to keep, stay strong in the Holy Spirit, then I might sin, and I might fall down willfully, because it doesn't take long. You start, I mean, don't try me on this, okay? Don't stop coming to church, okay? But it doesn't take long once a person stops meeting with the assembly, meeting with the brothers and sisters of Christ, stops reading their Bible, stops praying, it doesn't take long before they're out there doing things they would have never done before. That's how dangerous, that's how strong the allure of Satan is and strong the world is. Because let me tell you something, sin is fun. For a while. But it has a high price. price. If it wasn't fun, nobody would want to do it. Okay. If there wasn't a little bit of thrill to it, nobody would want to do it. It wouldn't be tempting to us. I don't know what that fruit was that Adam and Eve ate. People like to say it was an apple. I don't know. I like to think maybe it was a passion fruit. I don't know. <laughs> what the world is a passion fruit? I don't know. Um, <laughs> but you know, that's a drink. You know, there's passion. There's a real fruit called passion fruit. Okay. But my point is, the Bible doesn't tell us what the fruit was. Okay. It doesn't tell us it's an apple tree. Just which people say that. But I like to think that, uh, what was the point I was going to make there? Boy, I lost that point. Sorry. Um, so yeah, fun, 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 fun. I'd like to think that, that fruit, whatever it was, it must have been incredibly tempting. I mean, they're eating every day. They got all, the, they got the Garden of Eden. A taste. You know, that must be like, wow, that's. Or they, thought it would be. they? There you go. Satan painted it as a picture that this must taste like nothing you've ever tasted before because you're going to know like God the minute you eat it. This is the fruit of the gods. You'll be God if you eat it. You'll be just like him. (laughs) What a lie. What a lie. You know? So I say all that to say God has given us sweet. Sweet spirit of assurance to us. And he wants to help us with a spirit of control. Now, a spirit of control sounds at first very uh, uh, dominating. I mean, if we think back to our scriptures in Romans, when Paul said, um, uh, he was talking about the spirit of the flesh. uh, And I want to find the exact reference. I thought about saying it then, but I didn't. Um, because it sounded like this control. Okay. For what the law could, verse 3, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And as you read through that, you begin to get the feeling that God is this control. If you're not, if you're reading it wrongly, if you're not careful, God isn't forcing us. Okay. He's not forcing us to walk according to the spirit. When it sounds like when he says, if you don't have the spirit of Christ in you, that's a choice we make to have the spirit of Christ within us. God will not force his spirit on those who believe. Okay. He will not force his spirit on those who believe. His Holy Spirit is what enables us to believe in the initial rebirth, you know, the new birth of regeneration, salvation. But it is not what enables us to be filled with the Spirit and sanctified in the sense that he does not force us to, okay? It's always a choice to surrender. So when we talk about his control, we're talking about a loving control. in back there in John chapter, I mean, Romans 8, he talks about the spirit of slavery. You know, it's not as if we were, we, he says, you were slaves to the flesh, but now you're slaves to God. Understand, that's not a forced slavery. That's a voluntary slave. Okay? I want to be a slave of God because he's the ultimate loving master. You see? So, yeah, I'm a slave to God, and that's why the apostles called themselves servants of the Lord, or bond slave was a phrase the Apostle Paul used quite a bit. Uh, that idea of slavery is very fitting because a master, if you're truly in this, this think of the world analogy, if you're, a ma- if you're a slave, the master has total control. You have zero rights, okay? Well, that's the, that's the type of loving relationship that God wants for us, but we, can, we know that our master loves us. He doesn't just want to control us like puppets. He loves us. And he would never do anything that wasn't good for us. You see the difference? No, no worldly master could do that. And I think that's why early on the word, the Hebrew word Adonai, was chosen as the word to represent God. When the, God's name was so holy, they wouldn't say Yahweh. They would say Adonai. Because Adonai literally means master. God is our loving master. So. Spirit of control, let's look at First Thessalonians chapter 4, and there's two or three scriptures here. A lot of what I just read, that whole section, Romans 8, 3 through 13 is there, but also in First Thessalonians uh, 4, I want to read that and I want to read 1 Corinthians 9 to you. Uh, let's see if I have it marked here. Okay, here we go. 1 Thessalonians 4, 7 says this. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Okay, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. God's control of our lives that He wants to, He wants us to surrender to, let me phrase it that way, to His control, is for purity. Okay, it's for purity. It's for sanctification. And then when we turn back to uh, 1 Corinthians 9, we see this verse. I want to read to you verse 24 through 27. Paul is using an analogy here of running a race and what an athlete trains, how an athlete trains. To, to, anal- to be analogous to the spiritual life, the spirit-filled life and how we try to maintain it. He says, do you not know, this is verse 24, chapter 9, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. And everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it, to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable. Now, before I read verse 26-27, what is Paul setting up? What's his analogy here? He's writing to Corinthians, and Corinth is a city in Greece, and what are the Greeks famous for when it comes to athletics? Great bodies. Great bodies, athletes, because they invented the Olympics, right? The Olympics were already on, okay? So, they're actually he's a, he's appealing to their minds as athlete athletics you know they're great warrior athletes and he says you didn't get there without training and so now he says in verse 26 therefore and he says you do all of that just to get a crown that fades i'm talking about training for a crown that lasts forever the one in heaven so then he says in verse 26 therefore i run and it, He's not saying, you need to go do this. He's using himself as an example here. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim, or in other words, not without purpose or a plan. I box in such a way as not beating the air. <laughs> I like that analogy, you know. I'm not just sitting here pounding. You know, I can, if I'm a, I am think I want to train for boxing, you know, and I want to box in the air, you know how boxers do like this, you know. But I never go actually train with a real body weight bag. Or spar with a real opponent. Am I going to be prepared for the fight? No, no. Because there was no resistance in the air. Okay? So he's talking about training his body. Now he says, but I buffet my body. You might say, I control my body. What is some of your phrase? We're all reading different ones here. Punish. What do you say? Punish? Yours says punish. I what say is punish yours? Anybody have a different word there? Buffet, punish, enslave? Anybody have a different word there? Subduing. Subdue, okay. So he's saying, I I I buffet my body, I punish my body, I subdue my body, I I may and make it my slave. Lest possibly after all I've preached to others, I myself might be disqualified. What is Paul really saying here? He's saying the spirit-filled life everyone is responsible for, even me. The great apostle. I'm responsible. I have to train my, I have to train my life. I have to train my very body or I may be disqualified. I, he's saying I could fall from grace. I mean there, there again another scripture that talks about the potentiality of falling from grace. That's what he means by disqualified. So what does he mean by punishing his body, buffeting his body? Uh, probably many things, okay? Uh, there is things that have been known to be, in, especially in the ancient world and the medieval world, ascetical practices. You know, they would deny them self-denial. Um, some of the great old uh, saints would deny themselves a good night's sleep. They'd stay up all hours. They would sleep on hard rock instead of beds. They would live. They would try to live an existence that was hard on themselves because they were trying to punish themselves rather than be. Now, all of that can be carried too far, way too far. Our salvation is not in that. Okay, But what Paul is trying to say, one of the most common examples of the way we train our body is fasting. One of the most common, most important ascetical practices to help train our body is fasting. Because our body craves food. Period. And if we can't tame that, how are we ever going to tame anything else? That simplest of desires, okay? That most base of desires, I should say. Well, we're out of time. We're, uh, we're out of time. We're on, uh, we're just trying to finish up the spirit of control here. So let's meet again next week and let's look at this, these last two, the spirit of continuing fellowship and the spirit of fruitfulness. Any last, the hour goes by fast. Any, la- any comments before we close? So glad you're here. Thank you so much. No thoughts? Questions, comments, additions, complaints? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this hour together. Thank you for the gift of your word, your your holy scriptures. Thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. We invite your Holy Spirit to be with us as we study and to be with us now as we leave this study recalling to our hearts and minds, just speaking to our hearts and minds all that you want to teach us. Not all that I've said, but all that you want to teach us. So be with us now as we leave this place and we ask all of this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, your Son, who lives and reigns with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit as one God forever and ever and unto the ages of ages. Amen. This has been Forming the Spirit Within. I'm Roger Culver, inviting you to tune in next time as Pastor Brad opens God's Word, helping us to form the Holy Spirit within us. Until then, may grace and peace be with you.